Welcome to NARC Troopers, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Today we have a very special guest, Sandy from Virginia. She's a warrior and her battle is against misogyny. Her experience is with long-term partner with NPD and she's a painter and a writer who is currently writing about her experience and her recovery. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me on and, you know, hello to everybody out there listening. Um, it's really great to be on this. I love this podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So let's just jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with your partner who was suffering from this uh, narcissistic personality disorder? Sure. Um, I was together with my long-term partner for 12 years. Um, the abuse was going on for those 12 years, and um, I did not know it. I did know there were problems in the relationship, but I was uh, trying to fix a problem on our computer, uh, which required that I go into a different browser than I normally use, and it happened to be the one he uses um, when I did that, pornography popped up on the screen, and I thought that we had been hacked until I noticed that there were tabs at the top of the page, and those tabs had information that pertained to him, <laughs> his initials and dates that pertained to him. So uh, with a very, very sinking heart, I realized that, no, he was he was tabbing those because he was using those sites habitually. And um, it was enough for me to get over the shock of seeing pornography because I was totally ignorant about it. It was actually a sex chat room, which I did not even know what that was. Um, mm -hmm. So um, it was really, really awful. And of course, I felt it through my whole body and it was a very, very difficult situation. Right. I know when uh, I talk to people about their response following these traumatic, abusive relationships with personality-disordered people. They all share physiological, biochemical, emotional, for lack of better words, breakdown, uh, where because it's a, a collapse of your reality in essence. So uh, you, you felt all of this? Um, I became... Uh, well, what happened was over the four months um, of um, discovery of more, he was um, not just pornography and sex chat rooms. It was also uh, visiting strip clubs and using prostitutes. So when I found out in this staggered discovery, I became totally dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, and I could not um, get out of bed for a while. I, I couldn't walk upright because... I had what amounted to like a knitting needle in my side. Um, I, it really got me in the gut and um, I couldn't walk well. And um, I was drive heaving over the toilet because I couldn't eat. So there was nothing in my stomach. However, I did have an epiphany when I was drive heaving over the toilet. I decided that I would never, ever go through this again. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew nothing about the effects of pornography or whether or not it was something we could treat, you know, go into treatment about or whatever. I just said to myself, I will not 
put myself through this again. Mm -hmm. Well, those first few months are rough. I will tell you, I lost 23 pounds in one month. I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, mm. But I did. And I trembled and shook and just to the bone, like a, like I was having rigors from a high fever or something for weeks and had panic attacks that were just disabling. I thought I was dying. So yeah, I, this I, is not like breaking up with someone. No, this it is, is not. betrayal, trauma, and it's post-traumatic stress. Absolutely it is. And I, I think that the more we get that message out there, that this is not your regular breakup. This is something entirely different than people can stop uh, wondering, like, what is wrong with me? What is happening? Because I, I didn't understand what was happening to me when it was happening. And it was just well, really... Well, a lot of people don't understand it. And the clinical treatment for this is post-traumatic stress. And it becomes very confused when you go to a couple's therapist for this. Rather than get treatment from somebody qualified to understand what happens when you've been through something this traumatic. Absolutely. And finding that qualified person is way more difficult than than you can imagine uh, because there's not a whole lot of people who really have the experience and training to help you with this. So um, I, I want to segue over to, to what we're talking about with pornography because I think that's the focus uh, of our discussion today. And when you accidentally stumbled upon that moment where you really did not have a good understanding about what pornography was, like me, I didn't know what a chat room was, or I didn't know people had cyber sex and all of those kinds of things until I had my experience with my husband. But um, some people don't see anything wrong with watching porn and even do it together and that kind of thing. What have you learned about the harmful effects of pornography since this, this experience that you've had with your narcissist? I really want to thank you so much for this platform to address that issue because uh, people are very um, misled about the uh, harmful, harmful effects of pornography. Our culture allows for pornography to exist and be explained and not be called out for what it really is. I think it's helpful to think about it just you know, step back a little bit and think about it in terms of what really is going on. Take a close look. So just just some statistics. 88% of top-rented downloaded porn contains violence against women. 88%, okay? Mm -hmm. That's hate, hate propaganda against women. So consider that in the context of 35% of all internet downloads are porn. That's, That's a shocking. tremendous amount of material shocking. going into people's brains and, and becoming normalized in our culture. Yes. Yes. You understand this is impactful. Absolutely. <laughs> more than you would even imagine it to be because none of us really want to look at porn because it's so ugly. Mm -hmm. And it also disrupts our relationships because and many times men are getting addicted to it, so they don't want to give it up. So they discount that it's, you know, harmful. Um, 
a third of all kids age 12 have seen porn. And we're talking not softcore porn. We're talking hardcore porn. Mm -hmm. It is so readily available with the swipe of a finger on a screen. Yes. And then the other thing I'd like to mention is um, a recent, and many, many of your viewers or listeners will know about this New York Times study article that Christoph, uh, a journalist, um, exposed on um, pornography. He found that it was infested with rape videos and that it monetized child rape, um, which led to um, some of the major credit card companies not allowing the parent company, MindGeek, to profit um, from, because it is a very profitable industry, to profit anymore from the downloads um, that they found on these porn sites. Um, so let's just stop right here. Rape videos and monetizing child rape. <laughs> Do we have a conscience as a society? This should not be allowed. People like to think that that industry, you know, is regulating what's going on there. It's laughable the number of people they have checking. And that's why so many of these horrible things are allowed on. Mm -hmm. They just do not have employed people to stop it. And it's profitable. And the children have no advocates who are drawn into this. And that's partly why I'm on this, because I'm not advocating just for children. I'm advocating for women, and I'm advocating to look at our culture, which is really off-kilter and really damaging Yes, people, especially women. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have pinpointed pornography as being one of the main contributing factors that sort of shaped uh, my husband into a porn addict and and fed into the whole um, creation of his narcissistic personality disorder. He was raised on a steady diet. Of, of porn at a very young age. I think he said he's the first time he saw it, he was five and that in his house, people were always watching it. The, you know, the yeah. people that would come, it was just very normalized as you said. And, uh, there's something dehumanizing and very, um, uh, narcissistic and toxic about what it does to your brain, because we know that narcissism affects the brain, the gray matter, the neural pathways. There's parts of the, you know, amygdala, hippocampus, limbic system, all of that that is not uh, normal. And I think porn um, contributes to that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the effects on the brain? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, there have been a number of studies done on this. Um, one of the drawbacks to trying to do studies on pornography is that to they cannot ask volunteers to view this material because it is it is unethical to do so it's so disturbing um but there are so many porn users who do uh volunteer for the studies that they have been able to study the brain chemistry um and they they did allow people to expose volunteers to it before like 2009 so they do have studies on what happens in the brain um 
so it, it, it damages, they've have, they have found that, um, it damages the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the area where discernment and judgment occur. Right. And there are studies correlating porn viewing with an increase in men accepting violence and not interrupting violence against women. Um, it is, unfortunately, it works on women's brains the same way it works on men's brains. And it, it's a process of desensitization where um, more and more hardcore material um, is needed for people to satisfy really what becomes an addiction to violence. And it, it, it is an addiction to a certain chemical in your brain that you want to activate over and over again. Absolutely. Um, and and yeah. it's like any drug, We you know, we can talk a little bit about maybe how you have to increase the um, the usage of it and the, the uh, level of hardcore disturbing things uh, about it has to be increased as you go because you develop some kind of tolerance so it takes greater and greater amounts of it or degrees of it to get the same uh, result. Yes, yes. And I mean, I'm just asking people on the podcast to to think about this because I I myself had no idea what pornography was about. I, I asked my abuser at the beginning, well, can I go in and see it with you? <laughs> That's how naive I was. Um, but what we're talking about in pornography is um, – are women being brutally penetrated mm-hmm. by multiple men. We're talking about them being choked. We're talking about them being denigrated uh, verbally. And we're talking about them being assaulted with ejaculation. And this is routine. This is regular, easily accessible pornography. Um, the scripts in pornography tell the actors, um, the women, that they are supposed to say they like that at the end. Absolutely. Now, think think mm-hmm. about that. What yes. is that doing? How, how is that something that women enjoy to have ejaculate shot in their face or all over their chest or whatever? And men who watch porn think that the woman likes this. Um, I think they must think that because it's become sort of uh, the norm. I've talked to uh, people about this and ask them, you know, how are sexual mores changing and, and that kind of thing. And so porn is informing their performance. Porn is, is also an impediment to in, intimacy. I know with my husband, he watched so much porn that our uh, intimate marital experiences were definitely colored by that. It, it seemed like a performance, like he was emulating what he was watching, but the intimacy was completely lacking and there was no yeah, knowledge. It affects the brain. Yeah. Uh, so that, and it, but not only that, it is tied to erectile dysfunction um, whereby men who are habitual users can, they, they become in, unable to get an erection with their partners and they need pornography to be able to do that. So it really contributes to this mm-hmm. addictive quality, but it ruins relationships. It does. That's, that's the part that, you know, I mean, if an addict chooses not to go into recovery, that's sort of their business. But what happens to the people who did not choose this? 
and it, it's primarily women, that's who I'm concerned about. And I want the literature to be in the focus and the money and the attention to be on these betrayed partners who are with, they have a marriage, they have a dependency possibly financially on their partner. What are they going to do and where are they going to get help? Right, right, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, that, that the comorbidities of, of um, the, you know, certain kinds of narcissists certainly are more addicted to porn than others, like the somatic narcissists. They're the ones who almost always have porn addiction and use their bodies and their uh, sexual skills to <clears throat> seduce their, their target. But um, I think that it also goes hand in hand with other addiction, that a lot of times pornography doesn't just stand alone as one addiction, but almost always there's going to be drug addiction that accompanies it or alcohol addiction or some other kind of, of uh, dysfunction. So it's not just like one problem isolated. I see it mm -hmm. coming in clusters. Yes, I know. And, you know, my point is we need to pay attention to what porn culture does to women. Okay. I want to talk about an organization where women can get help. It's called BTR.org. It's for healing. It's a safe place. It's a wonderful resource. Qualified, experienced trauma therapists coach and direct an hour and a half group sessions, several a day. There are usually three or four per day to pick from. So it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. time, you know, you, you want to go. It's used by women all over the world. It's $125 a month, but that allows these women to, to attend one session a day. If you need therapy once a day, cheaply, and you want a qualified therapist to be directing this, and you want to hear other women's stories, but also have them hear your story, which is so powerful. Um, the protocol for the sessions is safety. So pornography in any shape or form is not considered okay. That's part of the protocol. Um, the, I personally go all the time and I find that these, that healing happens and I watch people grow over the course of the months. Um, you can get expert advice on how to prepare for divorce. There's a divorce specialist. Um, and there are people who can help you if you're being physically abused. Um, and pornography is discussed a lot also. Mm -hmm. Well, there's different types of betrayal that happen in a relationship with the narcissist. And the, the porn addiction is prevalent, I, I would say, in, in the majority of those uh, partnerships with people who have this disorder. So, uh, and that adds a whole nother layer of recovery for us because we, in a sense, have been sexually violated. Um, we have experienced yes. uh, being, we have been used as a prop for them to have essentially they're masturbating with us as a prop because it's not a, they don't see us or hear us or acknowledge us as as human on an intimate level, we're just yeah. there 
to it's, help it's, them. It's, not, it's, it's even more than we're just a prop. We're barraged with images of being a prop. Yes. And it becomes almost like a brainwashing. If you're barraged with images, if you talk to young girls, and this is really concerning, um, that I was just reading in a paper in the paper in the post about how the incidence of emergency room visits has increased 50 percent over the past year for girls aged 12 to 17 um, and for for suicide attempts. Mm. It has not for boys. It's increased 3%. My theory is that the porn culture is invading girls' self-esteem. Absolutely. Absolutely. The choice for girls is to be either invisible or fuckable. What kind of a choice is that? And that is what is outlined by being a prop for male entitlement. Yes, it's a, just another variation of the Madonna horror complex, you know, right. it's the same, same thing. And, you know, something I think about, because I'm a teacher of high school students, and uh, I have, I have girls in my classes who have come to me and, and um, shared that they are in abusive relationships. And, um, and I have uh, boys who have, um, I think I told you how some some of my students had accidentally uh, texted me. We're on a text thread because of virtual learning and distance learning. And uh, they accidentally sent me a clip of some porn. And, oh, they were so embarrassed and so apologetic afterwards. But it was just a reminder of how, um, how it's commonplace. There's nothing... Ex- weirdly like oh this is an unusual thing it's pretty no. much just we the need norm to talk to girls mm-hmm. we need to talk to girls about it the boys are supporting each other in this yes um and that is a terrible issue and it's a separate issue but my concern is with the misogyny involved in this yes and girls if if, if as adults we don't speak up and out against this and i mean not just once i mean repeatedly to kids, to girls, to boys and girls alike, but especially to girls. Girls will want attention from boys. It's absolutely normal. But in order to get that attention, they are submitting to these terrible, terrible requests to be taken pictures of naked, to be uploaded without their permission. Right, the sexting thing. Um, That's been normalized. Sexting, Mm -hmm. uh, there's kids who are, it just makes me want to cry. You know, yeah, 20, 20, 25 years ago, um, I I remember an incident with a cheerleader at my school who had uh, sent pictures. I don't know how she sent them, but somehow they ended up getting distributed. They were topless, you know, of her breasts. And that was such a huge scandal at that time, 20-something years ago. Today, I think it's just regular commerce between young people, between teenagers, that that that's uh, an acceptable thing to do, uh, is to sext each other and to send dick pics and, and booby pictures or whatever is, is, yeah. has been normalized to the point where th- there's nothing scandalous about that anymore. 
I know. And this is why I think this suicide ideation is increasing because we are not looking at the whole people. We're not looking at the whole person. People are, are beautiful and they're seeing themselves as an object, a body part. Mm-hmm. Uh, the surgeries that are going on for people uh, to change their bodies is so sad to me. That is the worst kind of self mutilation self mutilation mutilation mm-hmm. um surgeries are very very difficult thing to recover from you don't want to be doing that once you do that to your body your body is knows that you are the enemy um, yeah. and then you can't stand up for yourself well it we affects your to mm-hmm. stand up for this it affects your relationships um pretty much with everyone um when you do that the way that you relate to other people because it's a type of you're, you're playing along with the objectification of women saying that you are a, a, an object and that no one's going to love you unless you look like this and you're mm-hmm. never going to have a happiness or a partner uh, happily ever after unless you look like this and unless you perform these sexual uh, you know, things that you see people do on porn, then uh, nobody's going to think that you're attractive or desirable. There's just all the messages coming out are, are very but, you warped. Know, I have to make a shout out to a lot of young people who are challenging these assumptions about their gender. I, I just think, you know, they're seeing themselves as a whole person and not fitting into the gender pathology. Mm-hmm. I applaud them for that. If it, you know, it, they need to be able to be speaking out about who they really are, how they want to look. And we need as a culture to stop thinking about so much about how people look. It is, it is so superficial. It drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. What about the kind of person you are? What about core values? Right. Those are so important. And there's so much gratification involved with those. Our relationships will be so much deeper. If we can dig into that with kids, kids are fascinating people and women are fascinating people. Well, but we're we're looking at a multi-generational thing now. I mean, it's kind of hard for us to think that the, that the kids are going to have the right messages sent to them when parents are spending as many hours watching porn uh, as the child. And so, uh, yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, it's a cultural, it's a major public health problem mm-hmm. it, and it really is to recognize and step back from blaming parents or blaming kids because the kids are just you know they're just like on there because their friends are showing it to them or whatever and they just need to be educated that's right and restricted but you know what we need as a culture to be having this conversation and we need to go after the industry because it is the wild west mm-hmm. that industry is not checking the content and they're not being held responsible for it. It's kind of, I've often thought about it as, is it's like the NRA of, <laughs> of like entertainment that, you, you know, it's such a big, powerful group that they're almost, um, you know, bulletproof when it comes to doing well, anything like about smoking. them. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Remember the smoking industry? How yes, they same thing. How they fought back for, you know, decades. 
And now look at how it's changed. Yes. So we can't give up, right? <laughs> um, we have to keep at it. Yeah. Uh, I, ha I have one last thing that I, I want to make sure we cover before we go today. And that's the um, back to the surviving all of this and going no contact um, survival skills for us. You, you mentioned the betrayal trauma dot org as being a resource i use better help i have a therapist on there i also have one through my um uh health insurance plan so i have two that i see and um and there's a lot of resources out there just a lot of of programs and things that that we can do to get help but at the center of all of these different programs they all talk about no contact with, without exception. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, about that, how it helped, helped you and how uh, that, why is that the centerpiece of all, all therapy and recovery from this kind of thing? Why is it so important? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a very, very good question. And I think that um, in many respects, your thoughts will determine your reality. So if I'm thinking about this, and if I'm thinking about the abuser, it's going to be more a part of my reality. I'm very, very firm about no contact. That's just my, in my case, that is really working. However, that doesn't mean I don't ruminate about it. Now it is up to me to take those ruminations and turn them in a different direction because my thoughts will define my reality. So what I do when I start ruminating, and it's involuntary, believe me, I know everybody can, can relate that the thoughts come in and whatever. Um, I take those thoughts and I move them in a different direction. So I happen to love gardening. So I identify all the plants. Um, so uh, about ruminations, that is a classic symptom of PTSD and the trauma that follows relationships with personality disordered people. Um, and that can be um, interruptions of thought where suddenly that person just appears in your thoughts in a very obsessive looping kind of way. Uh, there doesn't even have to be a trigger, although everything could be a trigger, music, TV shows, uh, smells, sounds just pretty much anything could set you off but the ruminations i think are one of the last pieces to go for me i'm two years out since my husband uh discarded me and uh, we're right there almost on the anniversary of two years in fact and i don't have the the crippling panic attacks anymore. I don't have the other physiological symptoms in my body anymore. I've done a lot of hard work on that. Everything from um, acupuncture, uh, sacrocranial massage, uh, regular massage, uh, meditations, pranic healing, energy cord cuttings, you name it. I've done it these last two years to, to deal with that trauma in the body. But one of the last things to go are those uh, interrupting thoughts where they just pop into your head for no reason, uh, even without a trigger. How do you get them out of your head and, and how do you, how do you uh, have like a pattern interrupt or divert your attention 
to something else. So let's say you do achieve the no contact. You've blocked them. You don't search for them on social media. You don't talk to them. You don't text. You have tried to remove them, but you're still having those thoughts. How, how are you dealing with that? First of all, kudos to you for all the things you've done. I, I as well have done many, many things, and I, I second the notion that acupuncture is very helpful. Um, that acupuncture helped me to get to the rage that was actually lodged in my pelvis, and that is related to rumination, to having these thoughts that you don't want. Um, mm-hmm. When I was able to access the rage, what I did is I went and got a garden knife, and I took it out to my garden bed, and I shoved it with all the intent of that rage into the garden bed, picturing my abuser. It was very helpful. Mm. Um, (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, the thoughts still come, um, not as, not as often, but when they do, I also determine, I determine to create other pathways. So I'm basically weight lifting in my mind, my brain pathways so that when, my brain is interrupted by disturbing thoughts about my abuser. I go to my garden and I name my plants, which mm-hmm. I find pleasurable because I love flowers. So I name each one of them and I have a huge garden. I go down the road and name them. And every time that happens, I just go there. I just right. go there. Uh, like, a yes, lot of I listing. Mean, you know, it, it's not going to just happen mentally. I think there's so many other, I, I'm so excited that you t- have tried so many things and that it's working. Congratulations. Well, thank you. We have to keep trying to find everything we can tools in our toolbox to get through this and to get freedom, wholeness and healing following this, uh, experience which again i have to stamp this and say this is not your regular divorce or breakup this is trauma this is uh ptsd this is a lot of things but it's not normal the way that we get through this and uh that whole naming the flowers i do similar things i do mapping in my brain and i say out loud where I'm driving and I will plot like a journey from my house to the supermarket or to my school or something like that. And I will just mentally try to imagine myself driving and turning on this street and seeing this bus stop and seeing this thing, you know, this restaurant or whatever. That's a way to be a warrior. Mm -hmm. It's your, it's your fight against this terrible thing that happened. Um, can I just say one thing, though? I have learned some stuff from this. I want to say something about boundaries yes. and how valuable this has been for me. Boundaries in all parts of my life, with friends, with business situations, with not putting up with anything that doesn't feel right with people who are adults. I don't believe, you know, in giving people a lot of chances. That's just not in my vocabulary anymore. I wasted so much energy on doing that. I just feel like it's been great to learn that. And the other thing is, is not living with resentment as a result of no contact. I have daily resentment against my abuser because he was not putting energy into the relationship in a way that was loving. He was actually quite detached. And I had resentment about that. Guess what? I don't have to live with that anymore. It's great. Right. Because you can be bitter or you can be better. <laughs> I've heard that before. And, uh, um, you know, both. I'm a little bitter too. I it's, it's lie. hard not to be. 
you know, we're, we're jaded We're the innocence is gone. And, and I really think that that's true. The veil has been lifted from our eyes and we see now what we were dealing with all those years we were with these people. And we see also how it is for others and what things are wrong around us that contribute to all of this. And so it, it is a, an awareness now that we have and, and it, it is a loss of innocence, but we are wiser and we are stronger and, uh, and we, we may do relationships differently. Next absolutely. Time. And we do you know, have those I mean, healthier boundaries where we just give, give, give to this one person because, you know, life is open with many wonderful people. And if we put our energies, even if we're still living with the abuser, if we put our energies into deepening some relationships with good friends, the world will start to open up for us. I think so. We need a tribe, hopefully, of people who understand what we've been through. And maybe they've gone through it themselves. I know that I didn't have any friends when, when I was discarded two years ago. I worked all the time. And when I wasn't at work, I was with him. He was a full-time job. I had to, there was hypervigilance. I had to constantly watch him. Uh, where is he? What is he doing? Is he getting in trouble? Is he doing something crazy? Is he doing something impulsive? Uh, you know, I need to do this. I need to do, I mean, he was, he was a full-time job. And yeah, so relationships should not be that much work. No, it really shouldn't be, shouldn't be very much work at all. If you're treating each other, right. That's true. And, uh, but you know, I, the, the, the couple of friends that I do have now are people that I met in recovery groups and support groups who are going through the same thing, not just divorce care and divorce groups where, but one specifically narcissistic abuse recovery groups is where I found them because they understand things and have experienced things like myself and like you, that your regular person with a regular divorce has no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and may I also give a shout out to meetup where you don't, you don't talk about this with people. You just go out and have fun and play badminton and Frisbee. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, you do that. And you can also find on meetup, the narcissistic abuse recovery groups, they're there. And, and there's so many online platforms that are there for support. I, I read Quora. Uh, Quora has some really good writers that can really give you clarity on what you're dealing with. And uh, I like Melanie Tanya Evans, her uh, Thriver program, and Kim Saeed, her breakup boot camp. And the, the list is endless. There's so much uh, so many resources uh, for this. It's just that in mainstream traditional mental health supports, it's lacking. The you yes, know you have I to agree. go online to search for what you need uh, when you figure out what has happened to you because your traditional mental health people. I, I think I'm here in Austin, Texas, and uh, I searched specifically for uh, people who could. Uh, help me with narcissistic abuse. And I think in a city area with a million people, and that it's just exploding and growing so fast, with over a million people, I believe there were four mm-hmm. providers. I know, that's sad. And, and yeah, and the, the waiting list to get into any of those four was months. And so that's a problem that I want to point to that 
that you know needs to be there needs to be more awareness and more help for victims of this so Mm -hmm. so sandy uh do you want to leave us with any words of wisdom about um this pornography epidemic or about just surviving the narcissist in general and and um recovering with with full uh zest for life like there is life (laughs) after it I have a lot of zest for life. Um, I, I did leave out, you know, talking about the spiritual element of recovery. It's so important. And that's the part of us that knows what is right and what is wrong. And and it also is an endless source for us of beauty and, you know, change. And um, I, I think developing ourselves spiritually, whether we're with the abuser or not, is possible, and it is a wonderful thing to do. Absolutely. I feel that, um, you know, I am closer to divinity now than I have ever been in my life, because sometimes when you are brought to your knees, uh, you can't do anything but look up. <laughs> right? It's a rude awakening. Yeah. It is. It is. So, uh, you know, you use what you can to be able to get back on your feet. And and that is definitely a source of strength for sure. So um, anyway, thank you so much for for being here today and talking about this. You know, I feel like there's so much still left to be said about this. We may have to come back and do a part two uh, at some (laughs) point uh, here in the future. But I just really appreciate uh, everything you've said today. Uh, I hope people hear this and share this. I would love for to see people sharing this podcast with others who, who are not aware of the whole pornography piece of this puzzle and who are also uh, a little muddy on, on what narcissistic recovery is from that kind of abuse. Thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. All right, guys. Keep on going. We're going to get to the other side. We are armed with knowledge, with faith, and hope that tomorrow the life that we create will be better than what we have ever dreamed of. Okay, bye, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you.